Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, good morning. It's good to get to be with you. I, uh, as, as Jeff said, uh, Steve is in Texas suffering away. He's actually, the flights today were all booked as well. So he uh, is coming back uh, tomorrow. But God arranged for him to be there and us to be here together, so it's great to be uh, together. The outline in your bulletin is wrong, obviously, so I'll give you an updated one uh, in, just, in just a minute. But you might wonder how in the world I landed at this passage. You know, when a preacher is doing a one-off sermon, when it's not a part of a series, you have the entire Bible in front of you to pick from. And I'm going to guess that if we did a survey of uh, sermons and lessons taught— not many of them are on the passage that begins saying, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. I'm guessing it's just not a very popular one. Um, so you might wonder, why would I pick this one? I have the whole Bible ahead of me. Why this one? Uh, and the, the, the answer is pretty simple. It's a passage that I studied and prepared a sermon for one of my preaching classes for. And so the heavy lifting of uh, preparing a sermon was already done. And uh, on a short notice sermon prep, that is very, very helpful. That said... Uh, I think as we walk through the passage, uh, the content will speak for itself. Its value for us will be clear. Because in this passage, we have a, a tool that's very helpful for us as followers of Jesus. We get a foolproof way to peek into our hearts. We get a foolproof way to peek into our hearts in this passage. Now that said, as a teacher, I am very convicted by it. What, what James has to say hits me uh, pretty hard. But if you, have, if you don't have your Bibles open, why don't you turn to, to James 3. Uh, the outline's going to be on uh, the screen behind me. It's a really simple one. First point, careful if you want to be a teacher. First point is be careful if you want to be a teacher, and that's just verse 1. The second point is the rest, verses 2 through 12. Your talking reveals your heart. Your talking reveals your heart. But... Let's pray. Uh, by the way, as we walk through this, I will say this is one of those Bible passages that kind of goes from bad to worse. So just be prepared. It's a pretty hefty passage, and uh, things don't actually get lighter as we walk through it. So be prepared for that, and we'll pray that, that God will do his work in us together as we walk through it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that we have uh, as, as Jeff reminded us as he prayed for our brothers and sisters that don't have this freedom, thank you that we do have uh, this freedom to have a sign out front and the doors unlocked and to boldly proclaim that you are king and that we follow you. Thank you so much that you have redeemed us, you have reconciled us, and even as we walk through a very challenging passage, uh, we do that as those whom you have already made right with you, as those whom you've already reconciled as those whose sins are already paid for, as those who are already your children by your doing. And so we are grateful. And I ask that this passage would bring us life as your people and as your followers, Jesus. So would you accomplish your purposes in your people through your word for your glory and honor. In your name we pray. Amen. This was years ago. I think I was still a college student. And so the details of the situation are, are pretty murky, but I do remember her reaction. Uh, I remember the look that she gave me, the tone of her voice. She said it very calmly, 
But there was a storm behind her words. She looked at me and she said, I am not pregnant. You can guess that I might have just asked the lady when she was due, which is something you never do. I've learned that the very hard way. I asked a woman when she was due, assuming she was pregnant, and she was not pregnant. And she was not very happy with me afterwards, and I don't blame her for that. I definitely hurt her feelings. Now I know there's three situations in which it's safe to ask a woman uh, if, she's, if you're holding the baby announcements, announcement in your hands, then it's safe to assume that a baby is on the way. Um, when your wife receives an invitation to the baby shower, it's also safe to assume a baby's on the way. Or if the woman in question brings it up, it's safe to assume a baby is on the way. Otherwise, just don't ask. Just wait for them to bring it up, and you'll be in a much better place than I was after I asked her that question. Right now, you probably want to slap me upside the head, and, and I deserved it. That would be the appropriate response. You might be wondering how I could have said something so dumb. And looking back on it, I am too. But at the moment, it seemed like an obvious question. But as we walk through this passage, we're, we're going to hear James saying, of course you said something stupid. Of course it went south. It's just what we do. James understands that perfectly. And, and we're going to see in this section of, of his letters of his letter that James issues a very stern warning to teachers. But he does that um, because of a very harsh reality that we all have to deal with, teachers and non-teachers. And that is that our tongues betray our hearts. Our tongues betray our hearts. What comes out of our mouths is directly connected to what is going on in our hearts. We're going to see that as we walk through this passage in James. And my goal for us is that we would begin to take more seriously the intentional and unintentional comments that we make. They reveal a lot about our hearts, perhaps more than we would care to actually see. But God has arranged it that way. I want us to take that seriously because the words that come out of our mouths, and even those that we stop just before they come out, they're an MRI into our hearts. We get to see what's actually going on in our hearts through the words that come out of our mouths. Let's see how James tells us this so we can start our first point. Careful if you want to be a teacher. And verse 1 says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Even if the, the why of that statement leaves us scratching our heads a little bit, we can catch what he's saying. You probably don't want to be a teacher because you're going to be held to a higher standard. That's what James says. First, he makes his points. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. It's a simple, straightforward statement. It probably grips some of you more than it grips others of you. And if it really grips you, it might be because you either are a teacher at the church or you are interested in becoming a teacher uh, here at the church. And so that warning should really grip you. You shouldn't want to be a teacher. But why in the world? Well, James provides his reasoning. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In short, teachers are, are, are held to a higher standard, especially within the church. Outside of the church, we see it as well. But especially within the church, by God's design, teachers are held to a higher standard. We, we agree with it. We might question it. But there, it's the reality. God decided, in my church, teachers are going to be held to a higher standard. 
There's something almost universal that can cause uh, Christian Americans to cringe. Perhaps apologize, perhaps try to figure out how to explain it away. And if these names mean nothing to you, I'm starting to show my age with my illustrations. I apologize. But Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, Peg Haggard, Mike Warmke. Those names probably make you sigh a little bit if you know their backstories. They are all teachers that were well-known or pastors who had massive moral failures and, and, and deeply impacted a lot of people. And so we as Christians, those stories are still told in the culture around us. They're, they're part of that, see, look at those hypocrites dialogue that we have to be a part of. And so we can hear their names and we can we can sigh, we can, our minds can get racing trying to figure out how do we explain that, how do we talk about it. Maybe you hear stories like that and you have a wonderful gospel response. Maybe you hear stories like what those men did and you're very compassionate because you did something similar. You have a similar story yourself. And yet, even if you have a similar story, it's somehow different when an ordinary Christian does it than when a teacher does it, when these men did what they did. Why is that? Why is the same sin different? That's a unique statement. The same sin is different. Why is that? Well, James tells us it's because of the position of the one who commits the sin. The position impacts the reality of the sin. Teachers are held to a higher standard, and the reason is that their sin has further-reaching consequences. I'll put it this way. The consequences of your sin go as far as your voice is heard. The consequences of your sin go as far as your voice is heard. So if you are in a position that your voice travels further, whether from a pulpit or a classroom or the internet or a book or a conference or whatever the means are, if your voice travels further, the consequences of your sin travels further. It has a greater impact on the name of God and on the people of God. And so... Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This really begs the question, though, is teaching inherently bad? James says, don't try to be teachers. So is teaching inherently bad? It could almost come across that way, the way that he says it, but it isn't. Teaching is not inherently bad, and in a few minutes we'll see why James' warning is as strong as it is. But it's not because teaching is inherently bad. In fact, teachers are a gift from God to the church. Listen to Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Did you catch that? Jesus gave the, his church the gift of teachers and prophets, and apostles, and evangelists, and shepherds. They're a gift from Jesus to his church, specifically to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Jesus wants to accomplish something very specific in his people, and so he provides tools for that to happen. He wants his people to look like him, and so he provides teachers, among others, to help make that happen. Teachers are a gift from God to the church. It's not inherently bad, but even the Apostle Paul felt the pressure of the position as teacher, as preacher, as apostle. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Paul works hard as a teacher. He puts extra work, extra requirements on himself to ensure that he doesn't do something that will disqualify him, something that would not measure up to that greater strictness that teachers are judged by. But if teachers were a gift from Jesus to his church, why is Paul so nervous? Why does James issue, issue such a stern warning? Well, it's because James picks up, uh, sorry, he picks on teachers here, not because teaching is bad, but because of the occupational hazard of teaching, and that is talking. A lot of teaching occurs through talking, and talking is risky behavior, according to James. Talking is risky behavior. The warning to teachers is stern because we talk, and we do it publicly, and that's dangerous. Talking is done by the tongue, which James is telling us is hardwired to the heart. And so something about the fact that the tongue is hardwired to the heart makes James say, you probably want to be a teacher. But let's move on and see why he does this and how he does this. Um, So point two, your talking reveals your heart. By the way, in most biblical passages, when you read heart, don't think of your physical organ that pumps your blood or even just about the heart as a center of emotions and passions Uh, the way that we tend to think about it in Western uh, societies. In the heart, sorry, in the Bible, heart generally refers to your inner life. It's kind of the combination of of your heart and your mind, your thinking, your emotions, your passions. uh, What's going on inside you is referred to as the heart. So it's your inner life. When I asked that lady when she was due, my tongue betrayed my heart, my inner life. I looked at her, and I figured she has some extra pounds on, and she's carrying it a certain way. She must be pregnant. That was just an all an internal assumption that I made. And my tongue betrayed me. Shame on me. Our talking reveals our heart. And that's a problem because James is going to make the case very strongly that our hearts are sinful, that our natural reaction is generally the wrong one, And our natural reaction is generally what makes it out of our mouths. Our natural reaction is generally the wrong one, and our natural reaction is generally what makes its way out of us via our tongue. In this set of verses, verses 2 through 12, um, we're going to see that James would not at all be surprised by what I said to that lady and by the fact that she was deeply offended by that. If I knew who she was, I would apologize to her, but I don't know who she is, so I can't do that. Verse 2 says, We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. What James is saying here is that we're all sinners, and anyone that does not sin verbally must pretty much be perfect. And what James is doing is he is building the case that the tongue is the hardest part of the body to control. And if you can control your tongue, you can control any other part of your body. That's how significant the tongue is. It's a pretty incredible claim for such a small part of our body. Uh, So over the next few verses, James supports his claim, starting in verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, 
yet it boasts of great things. James points straightforward. A little bit controls a big horse. A little rudder controls a big ship. The tongue, though small, is mighty. And just like the bit sets the direction for the horse, and just like the rudder sets the direction for the ship, our tongue sets the direction for our life. What we say, what comes out of our mouths, how we say it, sets the direction for our lives. The tongue is powerful, and James continues to make that case. Small and mighty can be good, right? Especially short people tend to really appreciate that combination. Small and mighty is a good thing. And often it is, but James is very convinced that it's not a good thing when it comes to the tongue. Look at verses 5 through 8. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and a bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has, be t- has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is, this is part of what I said. James is really intense, and kind of the news goes from bad to worse. This is, one, this is part of that. The theme of the power of something small continues, but James does not present that in a way that allows us uh, to interpret whether it's good or bad. It's not a neutral presentation on the power of the tongue. It's a great power, and he, he paints it in a very negative light. Just as a little spark can burn an entire forest down, so a tongue can bring an entire life to nothing. We see it. The, the, the preachers and teachers that I named, politicians, one bad phrase that they say can ruin their entire lives and their families and their churches. There's incredible devastation that can come that way. Not only is a tongue powerful enough to bring an entire life to ruin, it's untamable, James says. And if that wasn't enough, it's evil. That's what James has to say about the tongue. It's powerful, it's untamable, it's evil. It's powerful enough to destroy life, it's untamable, and it's evil. This is where, I, as I'm studying and, and even now preaching, I, I think, okay, James, some, some good news right about now would be really helpful and encouraging. Sometimes the downward spiral thing you think can only last so long. Something good has got to be right around the corner. But it's not yet. To prove just how wretched the tongue is, James presents its worst offense. Look at verses 9 and 10. With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things, they ought not to be so. We bless God with our, with our tongue. We gather, we sing praise songs, we can uh, go home and, and talk about how great God is and what he has done, and we can share the good news of him with others, and uh, we, can, we can be very verbal about praising God. And then we can turn around and we can gossip or we can slander someone made in his very image. And James says, no, we cannot do that. You don't get a tongue swap between those two. So you can't use the same tongue to bless God and praise God and then tear down people made in his image. 
that's not an okay thing to do. And James says that very strongly. James has built an incredibly bleak view of the tongue. And we might be left scratching our heads a little bit because, after all, the tongue is just a little bit of muscle that has no volition, no will of its own. It can't make a decision any more than my fingernail can. How is the tongue so mighty? How can this extreme picture of utter destruction and devastation be accurate? What do we do with it? If it's just a physical part of the body, then, then what, what gives? You might also have listened to this whole uh, kind of devastation of the tongue that, that James brings, just showing how bad it is, and you might say, none of that is me. That has not been my life. My tongue has not destroyed my life. I am controlled in what I say. This is not me. And James would say, here's the real risk. Look at verses 11 and 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce or salt pond yield fresh water. He uses water and fruit to illustrate this point that one thing can't yield another. Fresh water, uh, a fresh water spring does not produce salt water, and uh, one kind of fruit tree does not yield another kind of fruit. In, in DeKalb speak, we would say that a soy seed won't yield a corn crop. It just, it's just not how God's world works. But he's saying that about our hearts and our tongues. And he says, you can't fake it forever. Your hearts will eventually be revealed. We might be able to keep it at bay for a while. We might be able to filter uh, what we say and, and filter our hearts a lot, but eventually our natural hearts will yield destruction. That is the reality of, of our natural hearts and our tongue that is hardwired to them. When we kind of put everything that James is saying together, he's saying your heart will eventually yield destruction, and it will happen through your tongue. One of the the pieces of the puzzle that I think makes some of this can be hard for us to understand is uh, the connection that is, is weaker for us but was very strong for ancient Mid Middle Easterners between the heart and the mouth. Specifically, James is addressing the tongue. Uh, between the heart and the mouth, there was a very direct connection uh, for them. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 15. Said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. For an ancient Middle Easterner, it was very clear, and it's true for us whether we recognize it as clearly or not. What comes out of our mouth is hardwired to what is in our heart. They recognize that, and I think we need to. What comes out of our mouth is hardwired to what's in our heart. Our inner life will only be inner for so long. At some point, it will come out, and it becomes our outer life. And James says the natural state of our heart means that's bad news. Because it's going to come out. It's going to come out through your tongue, and it's going to be a problem. The tongue is tiny, James says, but it is mighty. And your heart is poisoned, so death is going to come out. 
on the one hand, the tongue is just a piece of flesh like any other in our body. On the other hand, our tongue is hardwired to our hearts in a way that my fingernail is not. There is unique danger to the tongue. We need to be warned of it. This, by the way, is why James Starch starts with such a stern warning to wannabe teachers. What comes out of our mouths, a teacher's mouth, in public, it has a further reach and a greater potential to bring pain and devastation. And so, when you're dealing with an organ that is hardwired to what's going on inside you, extreme caution is necessary. Talking is dangerous because of the tongue, and teachers do a lot of public talking. So he starts with a very stern warning to teachers. See, this core, at its core, this passage is, is less about the tongue and less about teachers and ultimately about our hearts. That's what drew me to this passage when I was studying. Uh, th- this passage can get siloed off as a lesson for the few teachers of the church, when in fact it applies to all of us who follow Jesus and have a tongue and have a heart, which that would be all of us. If we follow Jesus, have a tongue, and have a heart, we need to learn this. We need to hear from James here. What comes out of our tongues, KBC, is an MRI of our heart. Think back. What have you said? What have you almost said? What does it say about your heart? It's a really effective tool to see the state of our hearts. Is what's coming out of our mouths or what's almost coming out of our mouths. That reveals the state of your heart. What does your tongue say about your heart? As we work through this passage, if we don't stop and ask that question, we've missed the point. We might as well have stayed home this morning. What does your tongue say about your heart? That's the hard question that James pushes us to. He doesn't answer this, that question. He doesn't actually give us hope in this passage. If you keep going a few more verses, things get worse before he finally says, hope has to come from somewhere else. Wisdom has to come from above because we can't do it. We don't have it within us. Clearly, if the root of our problem is an impure heart, then we don't have the internal resources to deal with this problem. We are forced to look for an external solution. Thankfully, God knows that. It didn't derail him. He was not surprised when he looked down and saw our hearts and heard what's coming off of our tongues. God was not surprised. Listen to these well-known words of the prophet Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house, <coughs> the house was filled with smoke And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is in the throne room, and he sees God, and in that instant he he realizes, I am not worthy, I am impure, I do not belong, I cannot be here, I have to get as far away from God as I can be because he is holy and I am not. That's his reaction, and God knows that, and God provides. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah says, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tong- with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. The solution that we need, the hope that we have to have, is that the holiness, the purity of another will burn away the impurity of our hearts will do away with it completely. That is our only hope. We cannot hear what James has to say and remain confident in ourselves, think that we can do this. We have to turn outside of ourselves to God if we want to have any hope. We should be undone by this passage. And the wonderful news is that God loves to remake us completely in Jesus. He loves to make us new in him. When God saves us, He regenerates us. He gives us new life. He makes us new. He gives us a new heart. He does this incredible, complete, eternal work in one fell swoop. And at any point after that, we can die and we are right with God. We get to walk into the presence of God and have a different reaction from Isaiah because we have been made pure. And that happens in an instant by the work of God. But we're still people, in the words of Isaiah, we're people of unclean lips. And we live among people of of unclean lips. And so we still have the daily encounter and battle with impurity. We find it in ourselves. We find it in those that live around us. So on the one hand, God's work is complete in making us new and making us acceptable to him. On the other hand, there is this daily encounter with impurity and battle against it. Daily, we need God's purifying work in us. His work to make us right with him is complete. But if I, day in and day out, want to live like Jesus and look like him and talk like him, I need God's work daily in me. I can't just rely on what God did once and think that no more is needed. Hard work is required on our part to walk well with God and for that purifying work to be a daily experience. The first part of the solution is to trust in the work that Jesus has done to make us new with him. We have no hope apart from that. We also need the continual daily increments of his cleansing in our hearts and in our minds. And God has mostly chosen to do that as his Holy Spirit works in us through his word. And so saturating our hearts and our minds with the Word of God is, is one of the key means that God has chosen to continue His work inside us of changing us to be like Him. And as that happens long term, once when God does His eternal and complete work in one fell swoop, and as we continue to saturate our minds and our hearts with the Word of God, gradually our tongues become less of a liability and more of a source of blessing whether you are a teacher or whether you are petrified to be up front. It doesn't matter. 
the cleansing work of God to reconcile us is eternal and complete. And yet, the daily cleansing that, that we need as we, as we are fallen and live in a fallen world, the daily cleansing continues that work of making us more like Jesus so that we can live and look and talk like he does and be accurate and effective ambassadors of King Jesus. And then lastly, there is a stern warning to the teachers of the church in this passage. We cannot, uh, with integrity, walk through this passage and not do something with that warning for the teachers. And so I stand here as, uh, as one who has been very convicted by this. And um, earlier I read 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This verse struck me as part of a response. One of the very frequent things that I pray is, Lord, kill me before I'm ashamed to your name. Don't let me do that. Don't let me prove this passage right. Keep me strong. Keep me faithful. This passage, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I pulled that out as a key passage for me this year. As a teacher, this is what I want my year to be about in many, many ways. I need this. And those of you aspiring to be teachers here, I invite you to join me in that. Elevate this. Don't overlook it. Well, let's pray. I'm going to give you a few minutes to, to examine the MRI of your heart. Look at the words that come out of your mouth and look at the words that you manage to stop right before they come out. What does it say about your heart? What is in your heart? What does God need to address? What does God want to address? Father, we come before you as self-proclaimed people of unclean lips, living among people of unclean lips. And yet we come before you as those whom you have chosen to reconcile, as those whom you have chosen to make new, whom you have chosen to give new hearts to. And so we hear the warning from James, and we peer into our hearts, and we uh, can be scared, we can be frustrated, we can be encouraged, we can be discouraged, we can be disgusted. But God, you are in the process of undoing us with your word and remaking us in Jesus. And so we ask that you would do that. And if there are are people here that don't know you personally, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be active, drawing them to yourself, cause them to despair in themselves and to turn to King Jesus as Lord and Savior. And for those of us that have already trusted you, that your work uh, to make us new has already happened eternally and completely, and yet we live in this fallen world as sinners ourselves. Uh, God, I ask that you would help us be more disciplined this year than we ever have been to take in your word well, to submit our lives and our hearts and our minds to it, that we would be changed so that in a year we as a church would find that our tongues are more of a source of blessing than a liability. So would you move in us? Would you show us what's in our hearts? Would you perform surgery that you need to for your glory and honor? In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. 
For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.